So here's my talk, a, a little caveat before we start. This is a talk that I prepared uh, a few weeks ago to give to undergraduates. In fact, about a week and a half ago, I gave it to some first year students, a 199 course, if you know what that is. Um, and so, well, so there's a danger, there's some experts here, I know, in AI, there's a danger that you may find the talk somewhat um, sophomoric, shall we say, or maybe freshman-esque, something like that. At any rate, uh, it covers a lot of the basics, I think, but uh, glosses over a lot of the subtleties in the issues. And I'm hoping at the end of the talk there'll be enough time to, to go into those uh, subtleties. So if you do find it sophomoric, that might explain why. Um, so what's the talk going to be about? It's this. Uh, the talk is about thinking, at least one version of thinking, and why it's an essential part of <coughs> acting intelligently. So those are the informal things that I'm going to be talking about. But you may ask the question immediately, well, why does that need to be said at all? And the reason why I think it needs to be said at all is that the current view of artificial intelligence, or AI, um, that is to say, the view that you would get if you were to look in magazines and newspapers almost every week these days, uh, is one that downplays the importance of thinking. It doesn't talk much about thinking. What it talks about instead is the idea of learning from massive amounts of data, so-called deep learning. We'll be talking about that. The main thing I want to do today is um, make an argument, which is that this one, that computer systems that are based on learning alone, or based on deep learning, even if that learning is from massive amounts of data, from big data, might have some serious dangers and drawbacks that might not be immediately obvious. And I want to talk about what those are. Um, okay? So that's what this talk is going to be about. But before I get into all of that, I want to talk a little bit about thinking so that we're on the same page as to what I mean by thinking, which may not be the same thing as what everyone, especially in an interdisciplinary crowd like this, thinks about thinking. So let's think a little bit about thinking. So one thing that's fairly non-controversial about thinking is that it's something that goes on in our heads. It's a biological process because we're biological creatures, and it's something that takes place in our head the same way digestion, say, takes place in our, in our gut. Um, and if you want to go into a little bit more depth, well, if you look at how people talk about thinking, and in fact, there's quite a few synonyms that your thesaurus will use for thinking that emphasize different aspects about it. So for example, um, there's the idea of believing or knowing or being convinced of something. I think Queen Elizabeth is in her mid-90s, you might say, meaning that's uh, a relationship you have to a certain proposition, a certain fact, namely Queen Elizabeth being a, a certain age. And you might use the word think for that. Sometimes, instead, you'll concentrate a little bit more on memory. And you'll say things like, I think it was a sunny day in October when this happened. And it's really not the same kind of relationship. Now it has more to do with what you remember or recall or reminiscing about. Sometimes it's not so much your memory at all. It's your imagination that's emphasized. So you say things like, I think I'll own a boat someday. Where you're not really remembering anything. It's not so much a function of memory. It's something that you're constructing, a picture you have maybe about the future or something like that. And so a collection of synonyms of that sort. Sometimes it has to do with uh, these words that I'm lumping all together, Brian. I know that I think it was last week or the week before he just told me that he tried to separate them and, and there's probably good reasons to, to want to separate them. But you say things like, I think the hamburger is the best bet on the menu. So you're not really remembering anything. You're not really imagining anything. You're reporting on a, 
a judgment or uh, a conclusion that you've come to. And sometimes the conclusion has a, an extra little bit of weight to it, and you, uh, the, the verbs that you use are things more like concluding, or I figure that, or I determine that. I think the number in that square must be a five or a seven, you might say, when you're doing a Sudoku, after having undergone some sort of process and some calculations. So these are all, in different contexts, synonyms for thinking. And I have in mind um, something very definite, or maybe not very definite, but a little bit more definite, uh, <clears throat> about the kind of thinking that I want to talk about. And the easiest way to get to it is to watch it happen in yourselves uh, with a simple question answering test. Now, any of you here that have read any of my recent papers know what's going to show up next, and here it comes. Pretend that you haven't seen this before. It's a test. What's important about the test is not getting the answer right. What's important about the test is you watch yourself answering it. Watch what goes on in your own head as you answer it. So here's the question and the that you're being asked. It's, you're told that the trophy would not fit in the brown suitcase because it was too big. And you're asked the question, what was it too big? Was it the trophy or what was the suitcase? Um, <clears throat> now, the thing to observe about this is not the answer. It's not that hard to get the right answer, namely, in this case, the, the trophy. Um, but observe that nothing in the given sentence itself gives away the answer. It doesn't tell you which of the two, the trophy or the suitcase. It just uses the word it. And to answer the question, you had to do the rest. You had to figure out what the it stood for. So I want you to observe that, that you had to do that, because now I'm going to change a single word in the question, and you'll see that what goes on in your head is going to have to be different. So now I say the trophy would not fit in the brown suitcase <laughs> because it was too small. Again, uh, you're asked what was too small, and something went on in your head. You got the answer right, no doubt, because it's not that hard a question, and you came up with the suitcase instead. Um, so notice that something had to take place in your head that was different in the two cases. It happened quickly. It's hard to put your finger on it, but something did have to happen. And it wasn't the sentence itself that gave you the answer. It was something beyond the sentence that you had to use to get the right answer. Um, here's a completely different one, same general idea. Joan made sure to thank Susan for all the help she had given. Who had given the help? Was it Joan or was it Susan? Again, um, nothing in the sentence gives away the answer, but presumably you know what the answer is in this case. And if I change a single word in it, uh, you get a different answer. Joan made sure to thank Susan for all the help she had received. Who received the help? In this case, it's uh, Joan that received the help and it's Susan that gave the help, and you're figuring all of that out. And <clears throat> to answer this question, like the previous one, you have to figure out what the she is, what the pronoun was. It was it in the previous one, it's she here. You have to make use of stuff that you already knew before the sentence was shown to you, okay? So that's the observation. <clears throat> so what does this thought experiment, it's a simple kind of experiment, what does it tell us? Well, one thing to observe is that to date, no computer is currently able to do much better than chance at answering questions of this sort. Uh, there was a test recently at AAAI on this that confirmed this. These kinds of questions are called Winograd schemas. If you've never seen them uh, before, you can Google them and you'll find a whole lot more examples of questions like this. Um, <clears throat> and to answer them isn't really rocket science. You don't have to be some sort of whiz kid to answer them, but uh, you do need to be able to think. You have to be able to use, in the sense of using what you already know. In the first question, you have to use 
something that you already know about the relative sizes of one object fitting inside the other. If the trophy doesn't fit in the suitcase, it's the trophy that's too big or the suitcase that's too small. And in the second case, you had to know who thanks who when one person helps another. Is it the helper that does the thanking, or is it the person who receives the help, the helpee that does the thanking? And you had to use that. It wasn't given to you in the sentence. You already knew that, and you had to use it to get the right answer. So you got the right answer, and you knew this, and that's what allowed you to do it. <clears throat> so that's what I mean by thinking, okay? Um, and this kind of thinking isn't just for answering questions in English. I'll give you a slight variant, and you'll see that it has nothing to do with answering questions at all. Imagine that you have a robot that's that asked to put a trophy inside a suitcase. Good job for robots to do. But the trophy won't fit. Can't close the suitcase. In one corner of the room, there's some bigger trophies. And in another corner of the room, there's some bigger suitcases. <laughs> and the question is, what corner should the robot go to? And if you think about it, it's the same issue again. If the robot's able to figure this out, it's because the robot's able to think about the relative sizes of things and decide, in this case, to go to uh, the corner with the bigger suitcases. Nothing to do with English, per se. Nothing to do with answering questions, but more having to do with thinking in the sense of making use of what you already know. So what's this sort of thinking for? Well, thinking in this sense, and again, there are different varieties of thinking, the sense that I have in mind, involves using what you know to make good choices about how to achieve your goals. In this case, your goal was maybe to get a trophy inside a suitcase, or maybe your goal is to answer a question, but making use of what you know to do that. It doesn't mean necessarily doing the right thing. Now, making good choices does not mean wanting the right things or believing the right propositions. But it does mean that your actions that you're choosing are somehow appropriate given uh, what you want and what you believe. So that's what we have in mind here. Now, <clears throat> you might think, well, that's what all intelligent behavior is, isn't it? And the answer is no, not all intelligent behavior is like this at all. Um, once you've been properly trained to do something, you may be able to do it without having to think too much about it. So we all know examples of things that are like that. You get skills of various sorts by training, like swimming, riding a bicycle, playing a piano. When you first start to play a piano, yes, you do have to think a whole lot. You have to say to yourself, well, gee, I'm supposed to have my middle finger here, not this one. I better learn to do that. And you practice it so that you get your middle finger at the right point, and so on and so forth. Once you're playing piano fluently, however, once you've been trained properly and you know how to play, the last thing you want to do is to be thinking about what your middle finger is doing. They'll all end up tangled in each other if you try and do that. You'll play piano terribly if you do that. So once you're properly trained, it seems that it's just the opposite. You don't have to think, make use of what you know in general uh, to, to play a piano. To play a piano well, you might want to but just to play a piano or just to swim or to ride a bicycle. And what's surprising is that there's a wider range of things that also are, seem to be in this category. When you learn to drive a car at first, well, boy, you have to concentrate on it. Turn off the radio, nobody talk to me, please. No nothing, no distractions, because I have to shift at the right point and do things like that for a manual, or at least control the car properly. Once you get good at it, then the radio goes on and you're talking to people, and you've got a Tim Hortons in your hand and the whole bit, right? So you don't have to concentrate quite so hard. And apparently playing chess is similar. There's experiments that indicate that you can play a <coughs> masters, once they've been properly trained, can play a very good game of chess while they're simultaneously thinking about something else. The experiment was to give them numbers one a second and to add them while they were playing chess <laughs> and the masters were able to do that. So um, it seems that there's a lot of intelligent behavior where you're not 
concentrating on what you know and applying it, like in the examples I gave uh, before. However, as we're going to see later, uh, thinking does still appear to be required when something completely unexpected happens when you're swimming or playing piano or grand pirate playing chess. We'll get back to that. But first, I want to talk about AI. <clears throat> so, AI, it says here, I've defined it, why not? Is the part of computer science that studies information processing underlying the sort of intelligent behavior seen in people. So it looks at information processing, but not any old information processing, the kind of information processing that seems to be behind what we call intelligent behavior in people. And there are various subparts of AI, computer vision, machine learning, speech recognition, natural language, planning, problem solving, game playing, robotics, and so on and so forth. It's a big, wild, heterogeneous field with a lot of different uh, parts to it. Uh, to simplify things immensely, and I apologize to my AI colleagues here, it divides into two big branches. One that we'll call the knowledge-based branch, where the job is to attempt to see how intelligent behavior can arise as a result of making effective use of knowledge. This is the kind of uh, idea that concentrates on knowledge and how you use it, and we try and figure out how to do that. And contrast that with deep learning as the other main branch these days, which is attempt to see how intelligent behavior can arise as a result of training on massive amounts of data, and not so much on applying knowledge at all, but on, on training. So just as a matter of historical fact here, 30 years ago, when I started out in AI approximately, almost all of the AI work was like this. It was all concerned with knowledge and how you use it, and can we make smart systems based on that. But these days, uh, it's almost turned completely around. Almost all of the AI work is based on something more like uh, deep learning. So if you look around a little bit, You'll see here's the MIT Technology Review, where it says things like, artificial intelligence is finally getting smart. Finally, after all these years of doing it the other way. And that's because of uh, deep learning, is what it says. If you come a little closer to home, you'll see that in Canada, well, we've decided just this year to put an incredible amount of money uh, into AI this year. Um, and if we look locally, as to how that money is being spent. Oops. Um, <clears throat> a new institute in Toronto, which you may have heard of, called the Vector Institute, that's focusing on AI and using some of this 120 some million dollars from the feds and as well as money from industry, and is based on uh, deep learning. So deep learning is where the AI action happens to be uh, these days compared to, say, uh, 30 years ago. So you might say, well, that's very nice. That might be convenient for right now to have the technology based on uh, deep learning. But don't we really need both branches? Don't we need the kind of skill that comes from training, the kind of agility you get after you've seen examples over and over and you get better and better at it, and also the kind of more, if you like, reflective intelligence that's based on, on using knowledge? Well, the answer is yes, however. Um, the two branches of AI appear to rely on very different mechanisms. We don't know this for sure, but the kinds of studies that people have done seem to suggest that how you do AI by deep learning is very different than how you do AI by uh, using knowledge. 
And as a money-making or as an effective AI technology, not necessarily involved with money, deep learning by itself has already proven to be spectacularly successful. You just have to go down the halls. There's probably a deep learning something being advertised here. If not, come in our building in computer science. You'll see it all over the place. So deep learning is everywhere. It's in medicine. It's in computer science. It's, so it's, it's, it's an amazingly successful uh, technology. Uh, Knowledge-based, on the other hand, uh, AI, on the other hand, is maybe not ready for prime time yet. Uh, it's, uh, there are interesting ideas there, but as a robust technology, it, it's somewhat lacking. People still don't know exactly where all this knowledge would come from or how a computer system would be able to use it. So that's the state of the art, more or less, uh, these days. So as a result, when people talk about AI technology these days, you might see an article in the newspaper tonight, or if you won't, probably within a week you will, about AI technology. They most almost always, almost always mean systems based on deep learning alone. That's what AI has come to, uh, to mean. Um, and in the second half of my talk, I want to address this question. Is this a problem? Is this focus on AI meaning deep learning a uh, problem? So what I want to do is I want to give you an idea of why I think it might be a problem, okay? And as I say, said at the start, I don't think the reason is immediately obvious, so you have to think about it for a while, but I think uh, uh, nevertheless you'll get the idea. So to do so, I have to talk about rare events, and I have to talk about why rare events aren't rare at all, okay? That's not a contradiction, and we'll see why in a second. So even if a system is trained on massive amounts of data, there may still be rare events that it will not necessarily get to see. That's what we'll be dealing with there. And, um, and this is fine if you rarely encounter the rare events in practice. So the assumption based, uh, that, that you see behind systems based on deep learning is that it's the probability distribution that you had of events when you were learning is going to be the same as the probability distribution of events when you're done learning. So if something is extremely rare and you never see it when you're learning, it's going to be extremely rare when you're done learning and you go out in the real world. Things that are very common while you're learning, those will be very common in the real world uh, as well. Uh, and that's not an unreasonable assumption, but it neglects something. Um, and that is that sometimes there can be a long tail of rare events. And I want to give you an idea of what that means. And the best way to do it is to give you an example where, which is fairly extreme. And uh, the example I'm going to use is what's called the British National Corpus. So the British National Corpus, for those of you that don't know, is a big database of English text at Oxford University. And it has over 100 million words in it. So it's very, very large. They get the text from all kinds of places. They put it all together in one place for people that are interested in studying language so that you have a large database to try out your ideas about language on. And it's gigantic, 100 million words in it. Most of the words show up in this database very often, but surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, there's some words that show up only once, one out of 100 million. So these are very rare words as far as this uh, database of words is concerned, uh, one in 100 uh, million. What's surprising about those rare words is that they make up half a percent of the whole corpus. So there's so many of them, even though they're rare, that half a percent of the database of 100 million words is made up of those extremely rare, rare words. So what have we got here? We've got the chance of seeing a given rare word, pick a rare word, I don't know any rare words in it. I think squiffy. 
probably only shows up once, if it shows up at all. Do people know what squiffy means? It means slightly drunk. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Pretend that's one of these one in a hundred million words. Um, <clears throat> so the chance of seeing it, if I was to pick a word at random, is very, very small. Almost zero. Zero to seven digits, right? And then a one at the end. So it's very, uh, almost zero. But the chance of seeing one of the rare words is one in 200 because they make up half a percent of the total corpus. So a particular rare word, almost guaranteed not to see it. But the chance of seeing one of those rare words, one in 200. So with a little bit of calculation, a little bit of probability calculation, here's the conclusion you come to. If I take a random paragraph with words picked at random and I put 140 of them in my paragraph, then I'm more likely than not to see one of these hundred, one in 100 million words, to see one of these extremely rare words, because there's so many of them. Okay? So what does that mean? It means that these extremely rare words, the chance of getting any one of them is almost zero, are in a sense not so rare at all. They're very common. You don't have to have a paragraph that's that big before you're going to bump into one of them. So that's the issue with rare events. There can be this long tail of rare events that make rare events to be very common, even though that sounds paradoxical. It's not, as in this case here. Well, what's the big deal with rare words? Why do we care about rare words? Well, most of the time, if we encounter something unlike anything we've ever seen before, something that's very rare, we've never hit it before, we can just shrug and ignore it. So what? You give a, a sentence to Google to translate to translate for you. It doesn't know what this word means. It might just put in garbage. It might just leave it in the original language. You say, hmm, okay, that didn't work that well. You try it again. Maybe you rephrase it or you just move on. Nobody seems to care, so you just do that. Similarly, if you do a search for something online and you don't find anything, most of the time you can live with it. It's not a big deal. What you need to care about is where these rare events can make a big difference overall. Okay, so words in the British National Corpus aren't going to make a big difference if you happen to hit one. You'll just skip over it and keep on reading. But there are going to be times where you are going to have to worry about these rare events because they can make a big difference. So you have to consider now the many different, bizarre, extremely rare things that can happen when you're doing things like babysitting or driving a car or... Or in a nuclear power plant. Um, so I have a friend who was uh, babysitting some toddlers, and one of them put scotch tape up their nose. Um, so if someone you're babysitting puts scotch tape in their nose, you can't necessarily open your baby care book to s under scotch tape and find out <laughs> what to do. It's a rare thing. Most of you that have babysit haven't had that problem before. But nonetheless, you have to care about it. You have to care about it. So it's something that is rare. The probability of it happening when you're babysitting is probably very small, but it's something that you have to care about nonetheless. Similarly with the funny things that can happen when you're driving, um, and also when you're in a nuclear power plant. So there's no way that prior training by itself can help deal with situations that are completely unlike those that you've been trained on. So maybe you've got hours and hours of experience driving cars. Maybe you've got hours and hours of experience babysitting. It's not going to help you that training by itself if you run into something that's completely unlike anything you've ever seen before. You've got to use something else than that. So here's an example about driving a car. What should you do when you drive up to an intersection in your car and the traffic light appears to be stuck on red? 
You wait a minute and the light is red. You wait two minutes and the light's still red. You wait four minutes and the light's still red. It doesn't seem to want to change. Can you look this up somewhere? Is there some place that tells you, here's what to do when you get to an intersection the light is stuck on red? And the answer is no, because the answer is it depends. It depends on all kinds of things. It depends on what time of day it is. It depends on what the traffic light is. It depends on how important it is that you get across this intersection. It depends whether it's a good idea to turn right to get around. It depends if there are cars in front of you or cars behind you. It depends if there's somebody that's waving you through. It depends, it depends, it depends, it depends. And that's the reason why you can't deal with it that way. You can't train for this kind of thing. They're very, very rare, and what you deal with it uh, depends. All right, so it's not feasible to train for all eventualities. When you're learning to drive a car, it's just not feasible to look at all the things that can happen when you're driving a car. When you're babysitting, you can't train in advance for all the bizarre things that can happen while you're babysitting, including events with scotch tape. Even if you have massive amounts of data, as in deep learning, you can't expect to uh, cover all the eventualities. In fact, when we learn to drive a car, as you all know, for all those of you that drive a car, you only train for a few hours. You get good at doing this and doing that, pushing on the pedal and steering and whatnot. Um, and you drive on a few local roads and maybe on some highways, but typically not even at night. And it's very different to drive at night when you turn the day, but you don't do much training on that. But what you are told, very importantly, is that you should be alert and cautious. You should look around you and see what's happening around you and be ready to detect and respond sensibly to unusual situations as they arise. Don't drive blindly. Just keep your wits about you while you're driving. In many cases, a failure to use what you know can make a difference between life and death. So if I can go back now. Life and death for sure here, it'd be a shame to lose a toddler because you weren't <coughs> using what you know and you just decide to behave in an arbitrary way because you've never encountered anything like that. One person could die here, 10 people could die here if you make the wrong decision. If you're in a, a plane, it could be hundreds of people and if you're in a nuclear power plant and you make the wrong decision, you behave stupidly, it could be thousands, tens of thousands of people. So life and death decisions depend on um, using what you know when you're dealing with situations that you've never encountered before. So here's where I say what I think common sense means, at least what it means for me, is the ability to make use of effective common background, to make effective use rather, of common background knowledge in deciding what to do. Making use of what you know, or in this case, what you know is something that's just common knowledge that a lot of people um, know. And without common sense, we would be totally at a loss when dealing with unexpected situations that are far beyond our experience, far beyond our training. The toddler with the scotch tape in the nose. You want to use common sense at that point in deciding how to deal with it because it's not going to come out of your training. You never have seen anything like scotch tape in the nose before. And similarly with the car up to the red light. So um, the lesson I draw from that has to do with the danger in AI technology. We're sometimes told that the main danger, the main thing you should worry about in AI technology is computer systems have become too intelligent. Maybe you've heard the term the singularity. We can talk about that if, if you haven't. Systems have become too intelligent, but nonetheless neglect the wishes of people. This is the kind of disaster AI that we see in movies often, right? The system has become very, very smart, and at some point decide they're going to take over the world and get rid of uh, people because people are no longer part of what they're interested in dealing with. So killer robots, 
that kind of idea. That's the danger of AI, we're told by Hollywood uh, Terminator movies, things like that, right? Killer robots. What I want to suggest is that there is a more pressing danger to worry about. This is okay. You can worry about that if you like worrying about things. But I think there's a more <laughs> pressing thing to keep in mind, which is this one here, which systems that are considered to be intelligent enough, not too intelligent, but intelligent enough to control decisions and uh, control machines and make decisions on their own. So what I would be most concerned about is computer systems that don't have common sense, that are making decisions where you really should have common sense. That, I think, is a more pressing and a more realistic worry about AI than this one up here, than the killer robot idea, the super smart robots that don't care about people. So what to watch for as far as this is concerned? I think what you watch for is this pitch. Hey, things are looking good. We haven't had an accident in four years. If you hear something like that about AI systems, I think what you should remember is this. Remember the idea that there could be a long tail of very rare events that are nonetheless quite significant. That if you make the wrong choice in these rare events, you could have uh, very bad behavior, catastrophic behavior. The question to ask is this one. How is the system going to behave, if it's based on deep learning, say, when its training fails? How is the system going to decide what to do when it's dealing with a situation that's completely unlike those that it's been trained on? The lesson I draw from that is this. Systems without common sense should never be autonomous. They should never be making decisions for themselves. They need adult supervision, <laughs> the way of thinking of it. They need someone to sort of say, okay, you're out of your league there, Mr. AI system. Uh, you're not going to be making a, an appropriate decision because you've never seen anything like this before. Okay? So they should be supervised by other entities, people presumably, or maybe other systems, that, that have common sense. So what about, why can't there be other AI systems? What about if we want AI systems with common sense? <laughs> we might want systems that are autonomous, for example, or maybe semi-autonomous, mostly autonomous, to work in environments that are dangerous, remote, far away, inaccessible, or something like that. Could we ever get AI systems that have common sense to deal with that? What is behind common sense? And could computer systems ever have it? So um, again, what I mean by common sense is having common background knowledge to make appropriate choices about how to achieve your goals. And so how does this actually work? How does common sense work? Not deep learning, but common sense. I think there are three questions uh, to consider. Where would these goals come from? Where would the knowledge, background knowledge, come from? And third, what exactly does it mean to use knowledge in the sense of having common sense up here to make, um, to make appropriate choices? So in a longer talk, I look at these, but not here. Okay. So uh, instead, what I'm going to do is cut to the chase and not talk about these three question, questions individually. And uh, to cut to the chase, I think of what's come out of AI research is uh, the idea of symbolic representations. And I'm going to embarrass Brian Smith sitting here by giving a version of what's called the knowledge representation hypothesis. My version is uh, not his. He's the one that uh, had the name first. But nonetheless, let me tell you what the idea is in, uh, 
in my own words. So here's how it goes. Just as digital computers perform calculations on symbolic representations of numbers, human brains, it is hypothesized, perform calculations on symbolic representations of knowledge, and then use the result of those calculations to decide how to act. So this is the hypothesis about how common sense actually works. It's based on symbolic representations and calculations on those symbolic representations. So the picture that comes out is what might be called knowledge-based agents. And here's what they look like. Much of what the agent needs to know is going to be stored in its memory as symbolic expressions of some sort, making up what's sometimes called its knowledge base. So there's going to be symbolic representations in its memory. The agent's going to process that knowledge base in some mysterious way to derive new symbolic representations that go beyond what was explicitly represented. Okay, so it's going to calculate based on those symbolic representations. And some of these derived conclusions that it's going to get to concern what the agent should do next. It's going to end up with that as a conclusion, and then it's going to decide how to act based on those conclusions. So that's what, as far as I'm concerned, I apologize to Brian again, what the KR hypothesis is all about. And uh, it may very well be wrong. We may decide at some point that uh, there's a better way of explaining where common sense comes from. But so far, as far as we know, it's the only game in town. It's the only plausible story, or even remotely plausible story, of how common sense could work. So the KR hypothesis is a scientific hypothesis that attempts to explain the mechanism behind common sense in people. How is it that people could have common sense? What does that, that amount to? And it says it's based on this idea of calculating with symbolic representations of common background knowledge. Now this mechanism, this idea of symbolic representations of knowledge and calculating over them is very different from the one currently used for deep learning in AI. That is a mechanism based on training and massive amounts of data. It has nothing to do with, with any of those things. So it leads to the following question. Is it going to be possible to build a computer system with some form of common sense? That is to say, a system that knows a lot about its world and can deal with both routine and unexpected situations as well as people can. So is that going to be possible? Well, in my opinion, now we're really just talking about pie in the sky here. This is just my opinion, and your opinion is as good as mine. But my opinion is this, is that there are major scientific questions still to answer. Major ones, not simple ones, but major ones. And even with those answers, we're not done yet. It'll be a major engineering challenge to build computer systems that know enough, in this sense of symbolic representation, to behave truly intelligently. So. Here's my answer. Possible? Yes. Definitely possible. Inevitable? As some people might suggest, it's just a matter of time. Make our systems bigger and faster enough and they, they will get there. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Well, you can tell from the numbers there, 19 out of 21, that I'm near the end. I've really only got one slide left, summary and then a plug after that. So here's a summary of what I've said. Current AI technology based on deep learning neglects the part of intelligence involving common sense. It's just not what it tries to deal with at all. Um, proponents of deep learning, of which I hope there are none here today, um, <laughs> sometimes say that their AI systems will be intelligent, but they sometimes put quote marks around it, intelligent. Because they mean, well, that doesn't mean the same way as people are intelligent. So this is a different kind of intelligent. Um, so it's a notion of intelligence that's different from its usual meaning as applied to people. And to me, that's just a massive 
competent. It's a bit like saying that the systems we're going to get are going to behave appropriately, but it's not the usual meaning of appropriately. It's quote appropriately. Or we're going to be happy with the result. But I don't mean the usual notion of happy. It's a different kind of quote happy. <laughs> cop out. Cop out. Common sense is the capability that allows humans sometimes, when they exercise common sense, to deal effectively with new, totally unexpected situations as they occur. We use deep background knowledge we have of situations to deal with cases that haven't come up before, the certain cases that we haven't been uh, seeing anything like so far. These situations, as I tried to argue, can be rare individually. In fact, they almost are extremely rare. You don't see them while you're training at all. So they're rare individually, and yet they can make a big difference because they can be very common collectively. And you train on one, you learn about one rare situation. Okay, now I figured out what to do if I ever get to an intersection, the light's red. And then the next bizarre thing happens, which is somebody's trying to climb out the window while I'm driving. What do I do with that? And you deal with that, you say, okay, now I've got to figure it out. I know what to deal with somebody trying to climb out. And then the next bizarre thing happens. I just hit a deer, and now I've got a deer on my hood. What do you do then? And so on and so forth. So very rare individually, but, but common collectively. Understanding how common sense works may be our best hope for an AI technology does not behave stupidly, that is to say, inappropriately or dangerously, outside of its comfort zone. If we want systems that aren't going to behave stupidly, then we should look at common sense and understand a little bit better how common sense works. And until then, something I said earlier, we should insist that AI technology not be used autonomously. We should be willing to supervise our AI systems to make sure that they don't behave stupidly when they fall outside of their comfort zone. And that's it. That's the whole talk. And here's the plug. This is a book where I talk about this and many other issues. And uh, I encourage you all to buy many, many copies. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.